Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Hello and welcome, Ivan, uh, to my summer lair. And uh, I want to start off at the top when you got arrested for selling a Knicks t-shirt. Yep. All right. What was the story? What was the background of that incident? All right. I'll try to give it in a concise version. I was a college student taking a screen printing class. I've been a lifelong Knicks fan. Isaiah Thomas, the head coach, was driving the team into the ground. And so I made a t-shirt that was imploring for the coach to be fired. Um, I, it was kind of a clever design, and I, I did a print, put it online, and then I started getting emails from people that had somehow found it. I don't know how they did, but beauty of the internet. And they wanted to buy a shirt. And so then I thought maybe I should go to New York City where the Knicks play and sell the shirts outside of the stadium. You're based in San Francisco, right? Uh, I, was, I grew up in upstate New York, and I went to college near Rochester, New York. So that was my life then. So it wasn't inconceivable for me to drive down to the city. And I went to three games and sold out every game. So this was a product that people were really interested in. Um, fourth game I went to, three cops were waiting for me, put me in handcuffs, took me to a holding cell in Midtown South Precinct for uh, three hours, which is how long it takes for a basketball game to start and finish. And they let me out. Um, and I called... Uh, a couple of newspapers as soon as I got out and the next day the front page of the New York Daily News had a big uh, photo and uh, story about the arrest and I quickly made a website and sold hundreds more shirts online and uh, was interviewed on ESPN radio and eventually that led to my first job in advertising so I like to uh, remind my parents that getting arrested led to my first professional job. Cool and you feel it impacted the Knicks because they've been terrible. Like so, more importantly, hold, I'm, I'm grateful hold, that you got a job. I hold bro. no responsibility for the Knicks, <laughs> man. They can't do it. I was really hopeful Phil Jackson would do it, and uh, it's, it's just not a, working out, eh? It's been a really the only silver lining for me is that, like you said, I'm based in the Bay now, and the Warriors are so damn good that I'm still a Knicks fan. I still, you know, follow along very religiously, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that I've. Uh, I now watch Warriors games, and it, at least I'm able to like channel my passion for basketball into a team that's incredible and doing th- good things. Yeah. yeah, but Przingis is all right though. <laughs> He's great. I hope they get a good point guard in this draft, and I think I think they need to let go of Carmelo Anthony if they can now. So I bring up the the Knicks incident a just because it's basketball and that's fun, but also b because this is like kind of like the beginning of your like troublemaking. I guess is this how how do you frame like what it is you actually do? Did you consider it troublemaking? Uh, I think I like that. I, I haven't said that, but I I take that. I've uh, thought of using like creative prov- provocateur. Um, that works too. Yeah. Yeah, culture jammer. I'm really interested in taking ideas and putting them out in the world. And trying to have as big an impact as possible, and the that T-shirt project is what kind of catalyzed me realizing that as a broke 21-year-old college student, I was able to create this viral campaign, get a lot of attention, publicity, and I realized like, oh, there's no magic secret to putting something out into the world. You just do it, and not that every project or message is going to you know spread to the masses, but um, you know at this point, I've had probably 15 or so projects that have gone you know, what you'd call viral. And uh, it's, it's a exciting, it's a high, um, and it feels cool to, in the same way that Banksy is really successful at making street art that spreads far and wide, um, I think it's, it's important to, for all of us to figure out like what we 
want to say in the world, what, what we want uh, our voice to be and then to say it in this, you know, the same way that, you know, you're hosting this radio show and it's a channel for you to have a voice with the world. Yeah. But it's also just giving people like yourself a platform, right? So that people kind of see and hear different perspectives. Yep. There's a lot of cool stuff that's happening out there, right? Yep. And like you said, you put the next shirt up online and people find it. And that's the thing with the internet. Even with our, these interviews I do, I'm shocked at the different countries and places people find. So I'm like, what were you Googling? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You'll never, you never know where something will go. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the magic of it. And so how did culture jamming come into your life then? Because that seems to kind of be the bedrock or one of the sure. foundations sure. of your manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good question. I think in some ways growing up in a really conservative town and being a child of very hippie parents that uh, deprived me of things like video games and TV and junk food, which is fine. Like it's, I mean, it wasn't fine for me, but it's like I understand what they were doing. But when you live in a town where you're the only kid that's being raised that way and all of your peers, uh, you know, are living a more conventional lifestyle, uh, it alienates you. And when you're the only Jewish kid in your entire town, that alienates you. And so I think from an early age, I became pretty, uh, familiar with like what it was like to feel like an outsider. And I think that drew me to eventually finding creative projects that, um, like street art to me is, I think most street artists are outsiders that, feel like they, they don't fit into normal society. They want to find a way of having a voice. And so they're not going to ask for permission. They're just going to fucking do it. And so for me, it was in high school coming across the work of Banksy and Shepard Ferry that sort of empowered and inspired me to, to do that. And for oh, a number of years, I, was, I did exclusively street art and stencil art, and that was a big interest of mine. I should also say my father is an artist, and uh, you know, having a creative influence like that has doesn't hurt what kind of art did dad do uh he does or do he still works he's 75 and goes into the studio every day um it's a wide range over his career but he's best known for uh optically kinetic glass sculptures but also does a lot of painting as well does punk kind of influence anything you do at all because it's kind of very scrappy if i can use that word yeah sure i mean when you say punk do you mean like the punk scene punk music or just even the ethos too of yeah. just kind of like getting up in like somebody's face and just kind of totally totally yeah punk ethos for sure i mean I, uh, in high school, I had a subscription to Adbusters magazine, which is Canadian. And, uh, that's also the culture jamming thing too. They were big on that for a while. Totally. That's where I appropriated the word from Callie Laws and the creator of Adbusters. When I graduated college, I interviewed at their headquarters trying to get a job. No luck. Uh, they didn't have any openings and they actually told me I should get a job at a big commercial ad agency to learn from it and then get out. And that's kind of what I did. Um, the radio head model just get big on emi then leave and then do your own projects totally totally but yeah i mean i think the punk mentality of just like go fucking do it don't ask for permission don't uh you know i think anyone can be an expert at anything they want to be now the internet exists it's non-hierarchical yeah i'm all about the punk mentality how but how do you feel like like you said, you already felt like an outsider. So in a sense for you, it wasn't that difficult. Like I'm not going to fit in anyway. So I may as well just be like a quote unquote troublemaker. But then how do you like... I, st- I still care what people think of me. I'm still very, to a fault, I'm very, very uh, hyper aware of like what other people might think. But that doesn't go away though. That's human nature though. Right. right? right. Like it, it sucks not to fit in, but you still want to eventually fit in. Like yep. um, the line that I'm going with or what I'm where I'm working towards is like, there's two kind of um, sides of this coin, right? One is like hypocrisy. One is like heresy. 
a lot of people tend to fear like uh, heresy. They don't, that's the whole thing with like fitting in, right? They want to have like consensus and they want to all like agree on one thing or whatever. But I always found like uh, hypocrisy the worst one because it's like to say something and then do something else. That's a bigger gap. I'm, all, I'm far more comfortable with heresy, right? And just yep. kind of flipping the table and then kind of go, seeing where that goes. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. So you have. Wait, you, sorry. I'm, I'm, what is, can what? you define heresy? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Let's get into this. How do you define that? I was thinking of it as just like, just when you recognize that the consensus or the agreed upon like, statement or fact like the earth is flat or something like that a lot of people people believe that back in the day and that yeah. was pretty like wide-ranging and you'd flip off the edge and be monsters whatever yeah. but there's always that one or two brave souls who are like i'm not really sure about this i'm not sure if it's flat but i don't think this kind of adds up and it's just that beginning of that questioning not necessarily putting it out there and that's how you define heresy yeah it's just that like just having those questions okay yeah i'm not familiar with that term but i mean that what that represents to me is everything um I, I think you have to question everything in life. Uh, I The Buddha says, don't trust anyone, not even me, unless you know it to be true yourself. Everything you know is a lie. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I, this, is, I, this happens even with like health stuff. You know, right now I'm gluten-free because the doctor told me that with this thyroid condition I have, it's helpful to not eat gluten and I'm trying it out. But I also feel like in 50 years, there's going to be a different thing for that. And so it's we're all a, cir- uh, we're all a subject of circumstance. And I think... Uh, Henry David Thoreau had a quote about how we all laugh at like the styles of old, but embrace so readily the current style. But like the current style is going to be old in 10, 20 years. And if you apply that perspective to everything, you realize that uh, not that we're all living a lie, but to question everything because uh, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. And on a long enough timeline, if you look back on things that were considered illegal uh, that have, are now accepted, uh, you'll see that we're, we're such a, a product of circumstance and conditioning that to not question it all, then, then you're just kind of denying yourself the possibility of truth. Consensus is not validation, right? And like all of history is basically just people being wrong. It turned out the earth was <laughs> round, right? That's all it is. I, I trip up over like wondering what, what are we wrong about right now that we all Oh, there's got to be so much because, I so mean, much. like, people are using leeches for medicine. I'm like, that's dumb. Like, where'd you get that from? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's... People will figure out that scalpel knives and surgery are actually, like, the worst thing ever for some reason. Yeah. And, uh, I'm still waiting for, like, the cell phones in our pockets to have some direct correlation to some crazy... It's coming. ...condition. So you you come you 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 do all this stuff with the Knicks now you kind of get out and you want to start doing some stuff. Um, you even worked at for a little while at Whedon and Kennedy, the big like the, a lot of people know from Nike, Levi's, and stuff like that. What kind of stuff were you doing with them, and what was that kind of experience like? So I worked at Whedon Kennedy in their Amsterdam office, and it was it came at a time when I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do advertising anymore, and thought to, to me it was kind of the last the last. If I was going to continue working in advertising, it was going to be there. It was a dream job in many ways, living in Amsterdam. Um, so I worked on stuff for Nokia, for Levi's, for Coca-Cola. And, um, you know, it was for me, it was a split bag. In many ways, it was really sexy. There were outdoor patio concerts with famous bands that would come through. There was Keg, Heineken, Friday, um, surrounded by an incredible group of creative people from all around the world. And yet I wasn't satisfied and I ultimately decided to quit and leave after just five months, which broke my agreement. I had to pay back my relocation allowances. It was a really big deal for me to break the contract 
And I did that because uh, a few of the projects that we were working on ended up just over a long period of time getting killed. And I felt like, and this was like working seven days a week over and over again, just crazy deadlines. And um, I just felt like my time is worth more than this. And I want to be able to have more impact and autonomy or responsibility in the success of a project rather than letting 10 different layers. It's, so this is, it's not a knock against White and Kennedy. It's more a knock against a uh, bureaucratic process, which is inevitable in any large organization or company. Uh, ben Stiller left Saturday Night Live after four, uh, four weeks or five weeks. Huh. And it's the same thing. It's just like Saturday Night Live is fine. It's successful. It's big like WNK and all that stuff. But it just like for what he wanted to do, what he was trying to, his talents, he yeah. knew who he was. Yeah, it didn't work for him. Mm-hmm. And it's just like four or five weeks. And you think like well, you get a job at SNL and like you're, you're in your 20s. Like that's wow. it. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool to hear. And so uh, a week after leaving that job, I started a project called Snail Mail My Email where uh, I invited anyone in the world to send me an email. I'd handwrite it and then send it to the recipient of their choosing for free. And it started as very much just an experiment. And it ended up really taking off, getting covered in Wall Street Journal, CNN, LA Times, ended up getting thousands of letter requests, forcing me to bring on a team of volunteer letter artists from around the world, which turned into a global movement. uh, And a book. And a book, yep. Snail mail my email. You can get it on Amazon. And... That project taught me a, a ton about uh, the possibility of having an idea, putting it out there, and then you don't have to have it all figured out or solved beforehand. You can just react to it, and um, that kind of that the, that month or so of time changed the course of my career. I was also dealing with like an incredibly painful breakup during that month, so it was just like so emotional and dramatic, and it was like leaving moving back from Amsterdam to the states and leaving this job and you know being done with this relationship. So it was uh, was helpful to have a win in there. Sometimes I wonder if I would have had as much success with that project. We ended up sending uh, 30,000 letters across the world. Amazing. With, uh, what was it, 9,000 volunteers. And I, I don't know if that would have happened had I not been, like, uh, heartbroken and, like, kind of lost in some ways. There's a value to being uncomfortable. I think sometimes, like... You could still work at a big agency and make a lot of money and like like you said, like work for Levi's, Nokia, all these companies and it could quote unquote be fine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like you're just comfortable and it's sometimes, this goes back again to the punk ethos. Yeah. Right? Well, you need to be a little bit uncomfortable to kind of get stuff done. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I totally agree with that. I also don't hate on comfort. I mean, I aspire to be successful and comfortable and I look at people like Shepard Ferry and Banksy that are now... Banks' work is selling for millions of dollars. Shepard Ferry has passive income through a clothing line. And I respect and admire it. I don't look at them as sellouts. I look at them as artists that have been able to figure it out and sustain themselves. Um, and so I, I have my own private practice and do work with brands. But I wouldn't be satisfied if that was the only way I spent my time. It's important for me to engage on independent projects that have a, a higher calling than uh, affecting a brand's bottom line. How are you gauging then success for these like like these projects that like you're talking about like uh, the passenger projects nail my email like like what is how are you defining success for those things or do you even define success for them or success for me is being inspired to create something and then following through on it and I try to leave it at that of course I have hopes and dreams and wild wishes. I want every and project. Rent. Sorry? And, and rent. rent. Correct, correct. I mean, none of my independent projects, though, am I doing 
to to get paid. I mean, they don't hurt in you know maybe giving me a little bit of cachet or uh, helping spread the word about me as an artist and creative director, but the the projects themselves are really done to just scratch a creative itch. And I guess success for me is is putting it out there in the world. And then if when and if they resonate with a lot of people, if they get lots of engagement or participation, that's a bonus. And it's a great bonus. It's a high. It's a drug. It strokes my ego. It's great. But I do tons of projects that we're not going to talk about right now that you know many people would consider a failure. But for me, uh, there's a late designer, Tabor Kalman, that has a quote, everything is an experiment. And I try to live life that way and really see it all as an experiment. You ended your FITC talk about that, just like just going through some of your failures and things that just didn't quite, they were like, I guess half-baked, you pulled them out of the oven before or whatever, however yep. you describe it. Yep. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's important to to show that all too often, and I'm guilty of this myself in uh, a presentation or a talk, of, you know, you only show the hits, you only show the things that worked out wildly, you're not showing the like, the time where you spent a month working on a project or two months or three months and then it launched and no one, you know, saw it or cared about it. And then you stayed in bed for a couple of days depressed and, <laughs> you know, you don't talk about the therapy appointments or the like downward spirals. Jay-Z has never mentioned the business that fails in his lyrics. Huh? And he's had a 40-40 club close, a number of business deals that didn't work out or didn't fizzled out. Like it's just the normal. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's not as, it's not as sexy. It doesn't serve, um, you know, one's agenda to do that. But I also think there's something powerful in being vulnerable and being like, yeah, not everything works out and I'm human. And, you know, I'm, I feel like the older I get, the more I respect people that show their flaws and I trust them more too. No, well, maybe his next album then, right? So yeah. we'll see if he gets like the vulnerable album and just like puts it all on the table. Totally. You mentioned like part of success is just like getting the idea and kind of executing it. But that's where I think a lot of people get stuck because they start going through that list where like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if people are going to like this or like something like snail my email. Like there's nothing about it that would necessarily shout out that this would work or like. Uh, sure. And I had a number of people saying, what are you going to do if it, if it does blow up and people, you know, if a thousand people reach out to you, which happened, how are you going to su- fulfill that demand? And I didn't know. And I just said like, I'll figure it out if that happens. Like I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself. So I, I agree that I think all too often, and I see this with uh, students of mine, they they find reasons why it's not going to work or oftentimes they'll share it, the idea with a friend and the friend will say, oh, that's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. The friend doesn't know, but people, everyone's a critic and it's easier sometimes to, uh, you know, expect something to fail or, or figure out uh, metrics or ways of comparing it to another project that has been done before rather than to you know, sort of imagine or vision into the, you know, what, what are the possibilities? What could it be? And so my advice to anyone listening that has an idea they're excited about is what's the, the minimal viable product. It's a a tech term. The lean startup. Yeah. How, how can you apply that to your creative idea? And then if it hits, you can expand on that. You know, you don't, we, I don't think we live in an era anymore where everything needs to be perfect before it's presented. You can, you can, present yourself with your pants down a little bit. Um, and I There's think, grace. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that that can be valuable. Does the opposite also happen too, where like people just have an idea and they think this is going to be the greatest thing ever and it's going to take down Facebook and Google all in like one week? <laughs> the I'm, hubris? I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm confident that I have worked on projects that I felt that way about. And, um, 
you know, I, I try, I'm now guilty of being what's, how do I phrase this? Like if I'm about to go on like an incredible vacation and someone's like, are you excited? I'm like, no, I'm not excited. Cause I, I just want to keep expectations really low. That way I can only be excited and uh, not disappointed. But I think I'd like to be somewhere in the middle there. But part of that, keeping the expectations low on a vacation, isn't that part of the element of surprise? You want to go out and be surprised. And isn't that kind of mirroring what your work does? Because your work is similar to like magic. You go to a magic show and you kind of know they're going to saw the lady in half and a couple of other things. But then they do a couple of tricks where like, yo, how'd that dude do that? Like, where did that quarter come from? And like, totally, totally. And in, uh, in Buddhism or Zen, they talk about beginner's mind and the value of when you're coming into something without knowing anything is actually like an ideal state of mind because, uh, you know, you're just, you're open to it all. Speaking of magic, I just saw an amazing performance in New York called In and of Itself. I just want to give a shout out uh, to that performance. It fucking blew my mind. It took every variable in the context of an off-Broadway performance and flipped it on its head. So at the end of it, you question every single part of the experience. So if anyone listening is in New York, I, I strongly recommend that. That's the point of magic, though, isn't it? It's to make you question. Because you, you were saying before, like, you, you're working at a big agency. You're doing seven days a week of deadlines, whatever. There's not a lot of room in that schedule for, like, awe and wonder and magic and right. surprise. Right. And you can't always necessarily schedule those things. You kind of need to just go down some random alleyways. Yeah. I mean, that could get us started on, you know, current state of affairs in the world in terms of technology and how we live in such a fast-paced world where we're constantly able to check updates and get buzzes in our pocket for uh, one of many notifications that I wonder about what we're losing from that. And, you know, for sure being constantly connected has its upsides hundred percent, but I do wonder if we are deprived of that wonder and awe. And I often will try and remind myself to slow down and do simple things like sleeping with my phone outside of the bedroom or when I land on an airplane not checking in immediately and just kind of like chilling and feeling my body and reflecting. Yeah. The being self-aware is, is rare almost now. And I think it's kind of like one of those things where like we, it's like when you're driving and then you misinterpret whether what the red light means, what the yellow light means. Like you see all these signals all the time and you don't either see them or interpret them properly. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot happening below the surface that if you're, busy with your head down all the time, going from point A to point B constantly, you're just going to miss it. I mean, sorry, one last point. Yeah, go, go. One, one of my favorite uh, assignments that I'll have my students do or when I lead workshops at companies, I'll often have them do this, is to just go outside to a crowded um, intersection and I'll just have people stand there and do nothing for 10 minutes and just observe what's happening with human behavior and what are the social dynamics at play and where are their tensions, where are their... Uh, emotional moments and it's a powerful powerful exercise one of the other ones i want to talk about one of the other projects that you've done is the passenger project this was really unusual and i don't know if i would uh, i don't know how i felt about it like <laughs> break, break it down what it is and then we'll get yeah, into it a little bit yeah. so the passenger project was inspired by a wedding i went to in new mexico and you know it was one of those weddings where it just felt like everyone came together and there was unity and connection. And it was in quite contrast when I flew back to the Bay and on an airplane, I, I was still kind of in that place of connection, but of course I'm flying and everyone's doing their own thing as we are normally on an airplane. And it just got me thinking a little bit about 
what it means to be in a plane in this day and age. It's this miraculous technology. And yet, how do you feel when you fly normally? I'm in my bubble. Like, don't talk to me. Don't make, it's like the, when you drive through the hood, you don't make eye contact. You don't acknowledge anybody. <laughs> totally. And so, and I, and I respect that. And I, I'm always curious about where is there room for human connection, especially, you know, I, I just, I think that we're deprived of face-to-face connection. And so the passenger project is this, it's a series of surveys that I created. And when I fly now, um, not on every flight, but pretty often I'll pass around one of those surveys on a clipboard with a pen. And it just asks a very simple prompt from each passenger aboard the flight. So it could just be fill in an empty space based on a surrounding space, or it could ask um, one to fill out what their hopelessly ambitious dream is or to draw an item from their luggage. So really basic prompts. I'm not asking for much, but what they do have to do is then pass it to the person next to them or to the aisle or row in front or behind them. Yeah, that's where it gets me. That's the awkward part. That's where people are a little bit cautious. And, you know, speaking of failure and experimentation, I'd say 50% of the time the project doesn't go through all the way because someone's not comfortable or uh, the flight attendant yells at me because it's not, you know, sanctioned. And I'm totally okay with that. And I'm, I'm not necessarily comfortable starting it every time. I have to really dig deep inside of myself but i think there's there's that coffee mug do one thing every day that scares you i guess it's it's a quote before it was a coffee mug but uh growing up we had that <laughs> that should be a t-shirt <laughs> and uh i always i think about that and i i think it's important to to break out of our comfort zones and to do things that challenge us a little bit and so that's that is that for me and um it's it's fun to get people's reactions and ultimately when it does successfully go through the plane what i what I then get back is this work, this unique work of art, which is a collaboration between every passenger aboard the flight. Yeah, you had some really cool ones in the video. Like, I like the outcome. I just don't like the work towards the sure, outcome. Sure, sure. Well, you can't. You yeah, can't, I know. They, they, they go together. They're a package deal. It's like but, you like the movie, right? But you don't want to sit there making it for like six months and then yeah. doing take two, take three. But yeah, I, I like that project. And I don't know of any other projects that are creating art on an airplane with your fellow passengers. So it's kind of a fun yeah. convention to fuck with. Actually, I've I've been approached by a couple of big companies wanting to like implement that and use it, and but they all came about it like in the wrong way, and so I'm, I'm still I'm I'm trying to protect it until the right uh, collaboration comes along. That's valid because it's like when something is kind of like small or kind of like uh, I guess we're going back to like the punky toss where you're kind of just doing it yourself and kind of figuring it out. It's hard for like a bigger company or company who wants to put some money or some time into it to kind of like make it work, scalable. It's not necessarily scalable. Like, I don't know, like from being from New York City, you know, the Chris Gethard show. He's like a late night. Uh, he was on the MN uh, network and, uh, I don't know that I do. And anyways, but yeah, he had a really, it was like a really low budget show and comedy central and a couple of other ones really liked it mm-hmm. and they want to put money into it but the problem is the more money they put into it they got diluted yeah and it just wouldn't work it's a funny thing how uh money and having more and more decision makers and approvals can very oftentimes dilute the merit of a creative product or uh content piece i mean it's something i spend a lot of time thinking about because as we discussed i I, I I enjoy living comfortably and that's important to me. And so that with that comes compromising. I'm not, my dad's a fine artist that has never compromised in his life. And, uh, you know, that has in financial instability in it. And I, I want a more, uh, stable life in that sense. And the, the challenge becomes how to 
do creative projects when you're collaborating with uh, a company that has hundreds or thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of employees and, uh, you know, lots of decision makers that all want to have their fingerprint in some way or don't want to get fired. And so they're protecting their job by, you know, making sure nothing is controversial at all. I mean, I, I did a project called Selfless Portraits where strangers across the world drew each other's Facebook profile photos. And it originally was an idea for Facebook that they were, they hired me to come up with that with a, an artist and good friend, Jeff Greenspan. And, uh, Facebook ultimately didn't want to do it cause it was too much of an, uh, they wanted to just be agnostic content company, but we talked to a number of really big brands. They all loved it. And they all had the same set of concerns of what if people don't participate? What if someone draws an inappropriate picture? What if someone doesn't like their picture and they got lost in the weeds and couldn't see it for a, a, its bigger picture. And so we ended up making it independently, spent a year creating this project and, uh, it was incredibly successful over 50,000 portraits drawn really beautiful portraits. And by and large, maybe we had like two people that drew a penis instead of, uh, someone's face. And I can live with that. And I, I think that it takes a lot of trust and, and, vi and you have to, you have to use your imagination and vision to believe in something rather than getting caught up in why it might not work. And that can be a challenge in working with bigger organizations. And for your organization, you work with, I guess you kind of work independent. You have your own studio. You have a couple of different kind of organization arms or like, how do you break it down? What is it you do? I do a lot of things. Uh, I've got a creative studio that uh, focuses on creative direction and ideation. We do content strategy, social activation, and film direction. And so I partner with a production company out of New York and Brooklyn, or sorry, Brooklyn and Los Angeles called Missing Pieces. And I specifically chose them because they are incredibly multidisciplinary as well. Um, so I'm, I'm represented by them as a digital experiential and virtual reality director as well as live action. And my whole thing is like, I don't want to be the, the commercial production world is very much, I've had conversations with production companies where they're like, what's your box that you're going to fit into? Um, we have a director who's the baby director and all of his films have babies in them. And that's, that's his thing. You know, what do you want? What kind of, what's your baby? And I don't want to, to have to have a baby. I want to be, be being able to have the freedom to, you know, do lots of creative challenges and opportunities. So missing pieces is great for that. And then with my company, it's a, I, it's me and an assistant. And then I keep overhead really minimal. And, you know, I've hired 25 people at a time for a Toyota project that I directed that came through my company, but it's all freelance. And I'm very interested in being selective with projects that come in and then scaling back down so I can have the, the ultimately it's about being independent and having the freedom to, to have choice versus being a company that has a holding company. And suddenly you're not actually able to be independent, which is the reason one might've started their own thing in the first place. And risks too, right? The freedom, when you're that nimble, you can be more risky. And if something doesn't quite work out or whatever, like, well, well, yeah. Yeah. I never want to do the same thing over and over again. I want there to be variables. I want there to be, um, new, new challenges, new problems. I don't want it to feel safe and expected. So yeah, risk is, uh, something I, I enjoy ex doing and, uh, it can be big, the bigger of a company you work with, the more risk averse they are. And so that is to say, I'm always appreciative when I'm able to have collaborations with people or organizations that, understand that risk is an inherent part of a creative project and are able to embrace it and trust in that. And that's always when 
I found the best, strongest projects have, have come out as far as my collaborations with the brand. Just one I'll share with you is with a, a brand called Silent Circle. And uh, this was with an agency chapter. And essentially, they, this, they're a phone, they, they make this phone called the Black Phone. It's the most secure smartphone in the world. And to essentially, for them to sell more product, they realized they just needed to raise awareness about data privacy. Have you seen Citizen 4, the Edward Snowden doc? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has a new one coming out on uh, Julian Assange. Okay, cool. Yeah. I didn't, I'll, I'll look forward to checking yeah, that out. Yeah, yeah. I'll tweet you out and then you can like... Um, so I just watched this Edward Snowden doc. Obviously had a big impact. Was really uh, shaken up about it. Wanted to do something. And this opportunity came up. And uh, what what we realized was in order to raise awareness about data privacy, we just had to ask people to read their app permissions out loud. And so I just went around San Francisco for three straight days talking to all different kinds of people, asking them to do that. And their responses were like shocked and, you know, it, it, they just gave such incredible reactions. And so our film was just a montage of that. And it spoke way louder than like a overly produced bunch of actors, you know, doing something could ever convey. Or just even somebody on Twitter and like, this is bad, right? Hashtag awful. <laughs> yep. Yep. Totally. Uh, last question. When when you do these kind of talks like at FITC and other things, you just did, were in uh, Barcelona l- recently. When you do these talks, what kind of um, – is there a consistent theme of like what people come up to you and talk to you about afterwards? Is it the fear? Is it the risk? Is it like – have you noticed any sort of similarities? I think everyone's got their own kind of angle. I think it depends who they are. If it's a student, students usually have one kind of question, which is like, okay, what – like – a lot of times people will want an answer on like, what next step should I take? Is it to work for a bigger company or to go freelance? Um, and then people that have more experience might be curious about, okay, well, these independent projects are great, but like, how do you support yourself and what's, what's your business model? And then other people still, to your point, are just interested in the more like uh, overarching themes of risk-taking and uh, you know, how to get creative projects off the ground. So it really, it runs the gamut. I don't have like a, a one, you know, theme necessarily, which I, I like. I like having, uh, I like getting feedback that ranges and is diverse. Where can people find you online? In a lot of places. Uh, on all the social media channels, it's Cash Studios or Cash underscore Studios. And then uh, I have CashStudios.co is my creative studio. And then my personal site is I-V-A-N dot c-a-s-h they just released a a dot cash and i was quick to snag that so nice well dot cash that's easy for you can you talk about anything that you have coming up some similar to this passenger project or snail mail email do you have something going to be released anytime soon or yeah i can talk about one project it's actually a documentary film but the theme is very similar to those projects you just mentioned in that it's a uh it's this gentleman that I met commuting, actually, and he works at the San Francisco subway. It's called BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit. And he's someone that caught my eye because he makes a point to interact with every single person coming through the aisle or through the, the gates. And he is genuinely warm. He high fives or fist bumps or people he knows while well, he hugs. And after commuting a number of times, I was like, who the hell is this guy? And what is his story that he's so friendly? Like no one. And, and it feels genuine. Like I said, don't make eye contact. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, he. I mean, there, there's different lanes, so it's not like you have to go through his, uh, his lane. But people will line up to go through and to just interact with him because he's so giving and generous and just friendly. And so I have sat down with him now a number of times to interview him, and uh, we have a shoot coming up. 
and I'm really excited to to show his story. I feel like there's from doing all these different interactive projects that connect people, I found that ironically there can be a disconnect between me, the project creator, and all the people that are participating. And doing a documentary, which is more of a one-on-one interaction, kind of like a radio interview, uh, to me that's 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 a very rewarding experience versus putting something out and uh, you know having it be more digital. Warriors taking it this year? Without a doubt. I, I hope they have some good competition, but right now at the Western Conference, the Spurs are tied with Memphis. Um, they're up 3-0 on the Blazers. Spurs are always a little dangerous, though. I think the Spurs are their biggest competition. Um, OKC just got a game against Houston. They're not a threat, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. And then the East Coast it feels pretty soft, too. I think the Cavs will continue their their momentum. Who else do we have on the East Coast? That's it. I feel bad for Toronto, man. I'm sorry. I really... They can't get it done. No, man. Don't feel bad. It's show show business, not show friends. They can't get it done. Yeah, I, I'm I'm rooting for them though. They're down one to two right now. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just it's just bad game. Like they just play poorly every time in the playoffs. Like consistently play. You know what I mean? Hey, at least you're making the playoffs. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As long suffering Knicks man. I know. And we gotta get the Knicks back on track, really. Like the NBA needs it. Like it's just uh they've had some glory years and stuff with the Ewing and all those guys, right? So And and the ninety nine with Chelsea Sprewell, Larry Johnson, Allen Houston. Yeah. They made it to the finals that year. All right. Thank you, Ivan, for like talking about like projects and creativity and like challenging and risk and Buddha. And uh we covered a lot actually. Shepherd Ferry Banksy, like we covered a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Good yeah. good questions. You're on it. I'm I'm impressed. Oh, okay. Now we gotta end on a high note. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.